Grace and peace be yours from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. From the seventh chapter of St. Luke, as Jesus drew near to the gate of the town called Nain, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. And then Jesus came up and he touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. Our text. Friends in Jesus Christ, no doubt you've heard of the Midas touch. A certain auto parts and service center has certainly capitalized on the phrase, but certainly didn't invent it. Midas, or King Midas, as he was known in ancient lore, one of the figures of ancient Greek mythology. King Midas, as the legend goes, once warmly received into his home a lost wanderer named Salinas, a man who'd been drinking and had wandered away from home drunk. For ten days and nights, Midas entertained Salinas with politeness, kindness, with hospitality. And then on the eleventh day, having recognized that wayward man, in fact, as the, the foster father of Dionysius, one of the, the gods of the Greek pantheon, Midas returned Salinas to Dionysius. In return for the kindness and hospitality that Midas had shown to his, his foster father, Dionysius was pleased to grant Midas whatever it was that he wished. And what was the wish of Midas? It was that everything that he touched would turn to gold. And so it was granted, as the legend goes, the myth goes, the Midas touch. Suppose you could say, in a sense, our Lord Christ also had that Midas touch. But in truth, it was far more than the Midas touch. The legend of Midas goes south from there. Goes on to, to say that while Midas quite enjoyed his newly acquired gift initially, he soon found it to be a curse because everything that he touched turned into gold, including the food that he would eat and the, the drink that he would drink. And soon he became very displeased and he despised that once precious touch and gold. The Lord's touch has no downside to it. His touch reversed the curse of sin that had arrested and that had claimed the vitality and the wellness and the health and the wholeness of so many. And the accounts of the gospel recount them for us. His touch dispensed for free what all of the gold of Midas never could have purchased. His touch is more than golden. It's life. And stop and think about it for just a moment. How much and how often Jesus had touched, physically had touched, even in the surrounding verses and passages of our text today from St. Luke. Luke must have marveled. Maybe that's why he included so many accounts as a physician. Luke must have marveled at it. Because Luke tells us that, well, at Simon Peter's house in Capernaum, you remember the account, that while the sun was setting, all those who had any that were sick with various diseases, Luke writes, they brought them to him and he, he laid his hands on them. He touched them. And they were healed. All of them healed. Or soon after that, when Jesus encountered a leper, Luke writes of, and the leper said to Jesus, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Luke reports that Jesus put his hand, reached out his hand, and he touched him. 
And he said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy was gone. Again, physician Luke records a whole multitude sought to touch him. For power went out from him and he healed them all just as it did for the woman in the crowd. That woman with the 12 year hemorrhage who touched even the garment or or rather the hem of his garment, even the outer fringe of his cloak touched her and did more for her than 12 years of doctors and doctor's bills ever did. The golden life-giving touch of our Lord. Don't forget then the one in our text today. The touch of our Lord in the text today, that young man's mother indeed, she never would forget it. Scripture tells us that Jesus came near the gate of the city and behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother. Did she have other children? Perhaps. But other sons? No. No, in fact, the Greek text says, uses here specifically the phrase, the only begotten son of the mother. He would have been for her the one to provide for his mother. He would have been the one to give her security and standing in the community. But there he lies, dead. She lies in her grief. And sadly, of course, it's a grief that she was all too familiar with. Because as the text says, she was also a widow. That's why it was her son who would have given her her standing in the community, her her security in the community. But no, she was a widow. She'd gone through the death of a loved one before. She'd been in this funeral procession before. Once her husband, now her only son. And perhaps for her now it seemed that even the very name of her own town mocked her as she marched. Because it's supposed by some that the the word Nain... The name of this town is a Hebrew word that means pleasant or delightful, probably then because of the the fresh water that sprung up there that gave life to all the fig trees and the olive trees that flourished around this town. How it must have seemed to mock her, the name of the town. The cruel irony of this life. Can you relate to her? I think the better question is exactly how do you relate to her? Because we all do. We're all part of life's funeral march, as it were. It's just that at different times we hold different places and different positions in the funeral procession. Maybe you perhaps have marched that march in the stead of, in the sandals of that mother, having to bury a child of yours, a son or a daughter. Maybe you felt what she's, she felt, a little less alive. As you accompanied the casket-born body of your dear one, maybe a son or daughter, maybe it was your spouse, maybe you yourself know the widow's grief, maybe you, like she, maybe you were helpless, or in time you will be Helpless, perhaps, to prolong the life of your own son or daughter even an hour. Or maybe you felt the juggernaut of sin touch your life in another way. If not in the the coffin's finality, then 
uh, of death and certainly in all of the other eventualities of dying. In the daily aching and the swelling and the pain in your joints and the grinding in your tiring bones. Maybe you feel sin's relentless force and its effects in, in diminishing sight, diminishing hearing or mobility. Or perhaps it's in the, the sudden surprising sickness that's hard to diagnose in your family. Maybe it's, it's you. Or maybe you see sin's inevitable effects even in the lives of your own children or your grandchildren as perhaps just like that, that, that mother in name, you're helpless to look on and watch and you witness them contend with your children, your grandchildren. You witness them contend with and live with the same genetic challenges and susceptibilities that you inherited from your parents or from your grandparents and they from you or perhaps with very heavy heart. You watch them deal with things that you never had to and so that you can't help them from experience but only can watch. Of course you relate. Of course you relate with the widow, with the mother, with her son in one respect or another. Who doesn't relate? Who can't relate to the widow, to her son of of name? To put it this way, some caskets... They're plush. Others are little more than pine boxes. But whether rich or poor, we fill them, don't we? Death makes no distinction. Some coffins are large, others large enough to bear only the little body of an infant boy or girl. But we, bear, we, we fill them, don't we? Young or old, we fill them. For we all, without a single exception, know and feel the unstoppable force of our sin. And its deadly march through and over life, just as it marched through and over the lives of Nain. In that one way, that steady, that seemingly unalterable funeral procession. And you may wonder, where, Lord, where is that more than golden touch of yours for me and for mine? Because I need it and we need it just the same as she needed it. Well then come with me back to Nain. Come with me back to the town of Nain. To sin's propulsion, death's procession heading out of that town. Heading in one direction. But the Lord of life meets it head on going in the other direction. A cosmic collision. Your Lord meets it head on, going in the other direction. There in that intersection at Nain, all that we by nature are collides with all that He is. Human sadness colliding with heaven and hope. Death with life. Sin with the sin forgiver. The sin releaser. The sin undoer. The sermon text tells us that when the Lord saw her, He was moved by compassion. A word probably spoken of to you before. A particular word that's used in the Greek mostly of of God. It's a gut-turning compassion. Moved to, by compassion, to compassion. What does the Lord say in the text? He says to her, do not weep. Not to chide her for grieving. 
but to prepare her for what's to come. And then, physician Luke records that Jesus came up and he touched the coffin, carriage, the bier. And then with his word, vocables of vitality, of life, with his word, he touched that dead man to the core. And he said, let there be life. There was life. Or rather, more specifically, he said to him, young man, to you, in the Greek, it emphasizes the personal application because it moves it to the front of the sentence. He says, young man, to you, I say, arise. Not even death can resist the one who has mastery over it. Put yourself in their shoes. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if our Lord and his golden life dispensing touch intersected with your funeral march? Can you imagine his hand on the casket carriage or the urn? Can you imagine your loved one in the faith or one day you at his compulsive command sitting up? Alive as life and speaking as did the the young newly living man at name. Can you imagine it? You should. Can you relate? Well, with that young man, indeed, you will relate. But indeed, in one sense, and Scripture compels me to, to tell this to you, in one sense, in an equally real sense, I tell you, all believers in Christ already do relate to that young man. You see, that intersection at Nain, it was a microcosm of the cataclysmic collision of Christ and our curse, sin's curse. And you see, in a matter of speaking, Christ already has collided with a coffin, a, a casket of yours, a spiritual coffin. A spiritual casket. Because Scripture says that we were as dead as dead can be. Dead in trespasses and sin. The Holy Spirit well could have used another word. So think carefully on that word today. Dead in our trespasses and sin. He, if we were only wounded or deeply injured, he would have used another word, but he didn't. Dead. Picture it. Spiritually in the coffin. As dead as the man at name was physically dead in his coffin. Dead we were in trespasses and in our sin. And unless touched by the life-giving touch of Christ, that's exactly how we would stay. Because as the soul goes, so goes the body too. And such are the wages of sin. But, Scripture goes on to say in that very verse, But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, he became, he became the curse for us. That's also what Scripture says in Galatians. So write it on your hearts and scribe it indelibly in your minds. Christ has redeemed us, Scripture says, from the curse of the law, having become the curse for us. That's what your Lord was doing on the cross, your cross. That's what he was doing there. He died our death so that 
united to him, joined to him, we might then live his life. But remember again what Paul wrote, we were dead in trespasses, but he made us alive together with Christ. Can you relate? Absolutely, you can relate. And indeed, one sense already you can relate. So remember what the Lord said to you. He said to you in John's gospel account. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in me and in him who sent me has already possesses everlasting life and has already passed from death into spiritual life, eternal life, spiritually. So to you who believe in him, to your soul, Jesus has already said, I say to you, arise. And whether personally applied to you in his word through faith as you believe it, or his word drenched in baptismal water, his word still makes church sanctuaries and naves into modern day names. Just like he will this morning here at our baptismal font. When little Nicholas to little Nicholas Stephen Parker later this morning at the second service, when he'll say to him in a matter of speaking, little boy, I say to you, arise. And those who would see it this morning, that's what they'll see. A veritable resurrection of the soul. A resurrection of the soul. And as goes the soul, so goes the body. But not quite yet. And that's the last thing to speak of here this morning. Not quite yet. You see, there at that life-changing intersection of Nain, the amount of time elapsed, I'd suppose, between Christ's words of encouragement and compassion to the mother and the time when her son was resurrected and he sat up in, in the casket, I would suppose that it probably wasn't more than a few seconds of time that elapsed. For you and me, it probably will, will be a bit longer than that, but no less certain than that. If that widow had known that in only a day or two, if, if she had known the day that her son had died, that in only a day's time or two days' time, that her son would sit up in his coffin and be returned to her, you can imagine how that would temper her grief. It's the same promise that tempers ours. It's the same resurrection reality that tempers life's disappointments. And allows us to live this life of faith, to live it in joy, perpetual joy. Joy because we already live in that resurrection promise. Even before it's come to pass, we live knowing that we will be raised. You know the end of the story. You know that one day you too, one day you too, like that son at Nain, one day you too will rise up and you'll walk away from the casket. And it's knowing you'll be raised up again to life that gives us Christians the courage to lay our heads down in death when that day should come. It's been reported that after the Englishman Sir Walter Raleigh was put to death in the tower at Whitehall, 
that this poem was found in his Bible. He had written it the night before he was executed. This short poem goes like this. Even such is time that takes in trust our youth, our joys, our all we have, and pays us but with age and dust, who in the dark and silent grave, when we have wandered all our ways, shuts up the story of our days. But from this earth, this grave, this dust, my God shall raise me up, I trust. God grant us patience to endure what is yet now and the hope to expect in all confidence what is certainly to come. In Jesus' name, amen.